Well, something that has uh, really intrigued, even puzzled scholars for centuries now is how we can explain the origins of uh, the Christian church, particularly how it started and how it grew so rapidly and so far uh, in those first really 300 years of the Christian church. Now, virtually every serious historical scholar accepts and agrees Jesus existed. They don't necessarily all believe he's the Son of God and all the rest of it, but they believe he existed. That's indisputable, really. What's harder to explain is the growth of the church, particularly originating in essentially 12 Galileans. Right? These Galileans, that may not mean much to you, but they weren't particularly well thought of to do powerful people. And yet through them... This church explodes into the world. It wasn't by the sword. It wasn't convert or die. That's not how it grew. It wasn't through political power because the the Christians didn't have any. So how? Well, the Bible tells, tells us and shows us here as we go through the book of Acts as a church at the minute that it's because of the supernatural power of God In the Holy Spirit, working through the disciples. Through God, the Holy Spirit, the message spreads about Jesus. And our passage today in Acts chapter 2 shows us uh, where this power for witnessing for Jesus came from and what it means for us today. In chapter 1, which we've we've looked through, uh, before Jesus ascends to heaven, he promised his disciples that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them to be his witnesses in the world. And now in chapter 2, that wait is finally over. This is the account of the day of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost, it just means sort of 50th or the 50th day. Uh, and this was a special Jewish um, harvest festival. That's interesting, isn't it? Uh, we, we'll come back to that at another point. But, um, and that took place 50 days after the day of Passover. This is the day God chose, of all days, to pour out the Holy Spirit on his church and powerfully launch them into their new mission, a new harvest of souls. But um, it's not just to hear about the start of, of their mission. It's also about the beginning of a whole new era for the world. The age of the Spirit. The kingdom of God has come in God's Spirit-filled people. So we get to see something of this this morning. Um, what being Spirit-filled means Uh, And this will expand more as we go on through Acts. We'll see this fleshed out more and more and more. Um, Being filled with the Spirit. Now that's similar. It sounds like uh, what some people call the baptism of the Spirit. So you've got the filling of the Spirit and the baptism. They're two different things really, um, depending on how closely you're going to define them. Uh, Let's say baptism of the Spirit happens when you become a Christian. At that moment, once and for all, when you become a Christian, you are baptized in uh, the Spirit. You're immersed in, joined to 
um, Jesus Christ by the Spirit. You're now fully associated with him and his kingdom in, in, that, uh, in the Spirit. It's like the same as uh, when you go through water baptism. Uh, we do that once. And now you're in and you're part of it and you're joined. Uh, so it's a one-time thing, the baptism of the Spirit. It's not a second baptism. There's not lots of baptism we have to go through. But the filling of the Spirit, that's an ongoing thing in the Christian life. Maybe there's a sense of fluctuation in terms of its intensity or impact. Uh, but you always have the Spirit as a Christian. But being filled with the Spirit is something we want to seek every day. Coming more under His influence and power and grace in our lives. So we're going to start to learn a bit more about that here um, we're focusing just on verses 1 to 13, but next time we'll launch off from verse 14 where Peter gets up and starts to preach to the crowd that's gathered there and explaining to them from the scriptures what they're seeing and hearing. So I mean, it's fascinating stuff, fantastic stuff, lots of really exciting uh, things for us to see. But what we're going to see today is really focus on this event, that the coming of the spirit means remember that's the question uh, Colin emphasized what they're asking what does that mean what does this mean well it means being filled with heavenly power personal presence leading to universal proclamation that's what we're going to see heavenly power personal presence universal proclamation let's start with this idea of heavenly power so this day marks the beginning of a new age of the spirit where Jesus' disciples are filled with power from heaven from heaven bringing them life and and transformation look again at verse one when the day of pentecost came they were all together in one place suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting so the first way the, the pouring out of the Spirit is manifest is in a sound. They hear something. The sound of a violent wind. It doesn't say there was a violent wind. It says there was a sound like a violent wind. Now straight away, there's a powerful image here, isn't there? Uh, that's associated with the Spirit of God himself. The Greek and Hebrew words for Spirit can mean Spirit or wind or breath, it's one word for those three. Wind, breath, it, it harkens back to the beginning of the Bible in the creation story where the Spirit is hovering over the waters of the deep like, like a, a wind blowing over the, uh, the surface of the earth about to bring creation into being, uh, order out of the chaos. And uh, um, it's like the breath of God. Uh, God breathes into his... People, Adam and Eve, the breath of life, spirit, so to speak. So he's a life-giving spirit. That's what's sort of perhaps in the background here a little bit. Um, the, the image of wind has also something to say about power, though, doesn't it? Here's the sound of a violent wind, a powerful wind, something loud, maybe a little bit scary, too. There's something about the wind, maybe late at night when it's dark and you can hear the wind outside. You know, there's something, ooh, about it, isn't there? Maybe it's just me. Um, and it filled the house. It surrounded them. Um, we, we can't see the wind, can we? Obviously. But we can see its effects. 
we see the trees swaying or the wind uh, or the leaves blowing. Maybe you've had a fence blow down in the wind, something like that. We've seen horrendous images, haven't we, of of the effect of like a hurricane or tornado just brings destruction. Um, Very, very powerful, but essentially invisible. You don't see it. You see its effect. Um, We were driving down the M4 the other day and we passed Green Park. Uh, where you can see that huge wind turbine that they've got there uh, spinning away. Uh, uh, 35-meter-long blades, 120 meters high in the sky. Apparently, it's the most visible turbine in Europe. I don't know what that really means. Uh, maybe the others are just a bit harder to see somehow. Maybe you, can't, you have to touch them to know they're there. I don't know. What it, but apparently, these are the most visible compared to the other ones. Um, but you can't, you can't see the wind that powers it. You just see the blades going round. And round and round. This invisible power is manifest. It becomes visible by its effects. The spirit comes as a sound like a violent wind. Invisible but powerful. But the thing I want you to notice is where this wind comes from. Verse 2 says it came from heaven. In other words, this is an an outside power. A power from heaven, in fact, sent down to us by Jesus, who has gone into heaven, it said in verse 11 of chapter 1. It's not, it's not power from inside the disciples. Its origins aren't inside, but outside of them. This wasn't some inner psychological strength or power within them that just needed kind of awakening or tapping into. This had to come. It had to come from outside of them, from heaven, in fact. Uh, I wonder what you think our culture says about personal power or inner power. I think it tells us that with maybe proper cultivation and uh, through things like mindfulness and other psychological techniques, you can find an inner strength and power. You can find power inside of you. Uh, I read one uh, psychologist's blog on this idea um, this week, and, and, and she said this, the source, which I, I can't quite understand this sentence in a way, but listen to it. The source of your inner strength comes from within. The source of your inner strength comes from within. She goes on to say, it's the perceived strength one must have to overcome life's challenges. If you're going to overcome the problems in your life, you've got to find this inner strength and power. And this power, uh, she says in this blog and other things, um, is meant to help you to do things like forgive people, cope with pressure, reach your goals, overcome oppression and injustice and, and so on. In other words, here's what's really being said. Our culture is saying that all of our problems are out there. But the power to overcome is really in here, in you. What does Christianity say? Almost the exact opposite, doesn't it? Now, certainly there are these external problems that we have to deal with. But the real problem, the biggest problem is in here. In that we have no power. 
We are sinful. We are turned in on ourselves. We are self-centered people. And so much so that we're actually blind to it. The Bible says that actually inwardly we are spiritually dead without Jesus. What we need then, what we need then is outside help. An outside force to come and rescue us. The Spirit is a life-giving Spirit. We need Him to come and rescue us. Titus chapter 3, after listing all the reasons why there's no power in you, it says, God saved us. God saved us. Titus 3 verse 5, God saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Friends, this is what we need, isn't it? It's what I need. Is it what you need? A power from outside of us. The Spirit of God to make us alive, to enable us to change and be transformed from within. How many times have you sat in the middle of your crisis and thought, I can't do this. I don't have the power to face this. I don't have the strength. I need help. I need someone, something outside of me to help. This is who the Spirit is, this this power from heaven. Proud people refuse help. They refuse to believe they need to change. I don't need to change. Everything's all right with me, thanks very much. It's you that's the problem. No, no, proud people say that. Don't be proud today. Accept your need of a saviour. Christian, accept your need of the Spirit in your life today. The life-giving Spirit. Stop trying to row the boat. Remember, we looked at this imagery recently uh, uh, between rowing a boat and and sailing a boat is a picture of the Christian life. Maybe you're trying to row the boat. It's my power when we need to put up a sail and let God's power help us. This is what the coming of the Spirit means. Real life, new life, a transformed life. That's come down to us from heaven. Real rescue for people who desperately need it. The coming of the Spirit means a heavenly power. But also it means personal presence. Here's the second thing I want to draw your attention to. It means personal presence. The coming of the Spirit signals that the new era of the kingdom of Christ is marked by the personal indwelling presence of God it means every person in the kingdom every believer can know and enjoy the personal presence of God in their own lives look at verse 3 it says they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them so they've They've heard something, this rushing wind. Uh, Now they see something, something like tongues of fire. Now once again, fire, that's a really important biblical image as well, isn't it? It's often associated with God's presence. God is here. 
Uh, examples might be something like God's covenant uh, with Abraham in Genesis 15, where he passes through uh, as a flaming torch. Or what about the whole Exodus story? Moses and the burning bush. Maybe that's what comes to mind in Exodus chapter 3. Then you've got the pillar of fire leading uh, the Israelites in the wilderness. Then you've got Mount Sinai where they come and gather. And the whole mountain seemed like it was on fire uh, because of God's presence. God came down and the thing explodes. Then later uh, on the tabernacle, what looked like fire uh, as well in the glory of God. Now this is interesting because there's a correspondence, it seems to be, with Moses and the Exodus and and what's happening here on Pentecost. Uh, In Jewish thinking and tradition, Pentecost, remember, was 50 days after Passover. And that corresponded to the time uh, Israel left Egypt and arrived at Mount Sinai. So Pentecost is parallel to Sinai in some ways. Well, God makes his covenant with his people. At at Mount Sinai, God came down to his people and he came to give them his law, to give them his covenant with them. At Sinai, God um, meets with his people. But now for the disciples, God has come down in his spirit. At Mount Sinai, uh, the people, they were so afraid of what they were seeing. So they, they send Moses. Moses, you go up. Um, you go up, meet with God, and then you can bring down his law to us. But at Pentecost, Jesus has gone up into heaven in order to send the Spirit down. Instead of um, fire on a mountain, it's on people. Instead of the law... We see the glory of the gospel. So there's these parallels and contrasts. Moses himself. Moses himself would have loved to have seen the day of Pentecost. He says in Numbers chapter 11 verse 29 as he's dealing with the people of Israel and they're complaining and grumbling and so on. He says, oh I wish, he says, I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Moses longed to see the Spirit on all God's people. You see, in the Old Testament, the Spirit only really seemed to uh, fill certain people at certain times and for specific reasons. It wasn't a universal experience in that sense. Not like this. And now, through Jesus, it's finally possible. Jesus, you see, is the better Moses. Remember, they were too afraid, the people uh, at Mount Sinai. Uh, They heard the voice. Remember, they heard the voice of God and they were too afraid of it. So they said, Moses at the mountain, you go up, Moses, you represent us. You, uh, You become our mediator between us and God. You intercede for us. And Moses did. He prayed for them. He interceded for them. God, don't wipe out Israel because of their sin. Save them instead. Don't judge them. Uh, In fact, uh, fire is also associated with judgment as well. Sometimes that fire was overwhelming. It was fatal. It was deadly, in fact. But not this fire at Pentecost. See, Jesus is the mediator for us. He's a better mediator whose fire cleanses us and purifies us. It's what it said. Luke said this. Luke chapter three, verse sixteen. Jesus would baptize in the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
The work of Jesus is one of cleansing us and purifying us of sin and making us totally acceptable to God, not for judgment. Can you see? Can you see? Now, here at Pentecost, in a sense, everyone in the kingdom is a burning bush, but we are not consumed. God's personal presence. God's holy, holy, holy presence dwells in you, Jackie, Tina, Sally Ann, Charlie. I better pick a man as well. Charlie, right? The holy presence of God. Notice how these tongues of fire. It says they separated and came to rest on each of them. Each has a portion of the Spirit. Then um, it says all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, just like Moses longed to see. And then in Peter's sermon, as we'll go on to see, he explains this. For example, from Joel, the prophecy of Joel. Look at verse 17. I will pour out my Spirit on all people, sons, daughters, young men, old men, and so on. All God's people. This, you see, is the new age of the Spirit of God. God dwelling personally present with all his people in the church. What is this like then for us? What is it like for us to have this personal presence of God? Well, it means a lot of things. And we're going to see this unfold over Acts. But let me just draw attention to one thing for your encouragement. It means this. To be filled with a spirit like this. Is to, is, it is to have a joyful knowledge of God's fatherly love for you. It is a joyful knowledge of God's fatherly love for you. It is to know that you are sons and daughters of God. Because he is the spirit of sonship, we're told. He's the spirit of sonship given to us. Romans 8 says that the spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Jesus said in John chapter 14 that the spirit's job is to make the love of God manifest to you. Something you can tangibly experience and see in your life. Romans chapter 5 says God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. The filling and fullness of the Spirit is the assurance that you are children of God. Loved by him completely. Uh, I found Tim Keller helpful in thinking about some of these things. And I heard him share this uh, illustration he came across from a, a Puritan preacher called Thomas Goodwin. And he said this. He said he saw a father walking down the street with his young little son. And suddenly the father stopped and turned and he scooped up his son and he embraced him with a big hug. And they kissed each other. And then he put him back down and off they continued walking. Now was that young boy... More or less a beloved son while they were walking together or while they were in that embrace. Well, 
on paper, so to speak, that there's no difference. He was just as much a son as they walked as they were in that embrace. And yet, in the boy's experience, there's a huge difference, isn't there? In the embrace of his father, he feels it. He knows it experientially. Being filled with the Spirit can be like that. It could be an assurance of God's love for you. Have you experienced the filling of the Spirit like this? To be so aware of God's love for you, so full of hope and the assurance of faith that everything else just seems to fall away. You realise, when you're thinking like this, you realise that God loves you this, this much, that when he loves you this much in his Son, then, then why should you be worried? Why should you be so concerned what other people think of you? Why should you get so upset and stressed about your daily needs? Why should you fear anything when you know God's love for you? You have the personal presence of God in your life through the Holy Spirit. And this leads us then to this third thing I want you to see, and that is universal proclamation. Universal proclamation. When, when we are filled with the Spirit, we have this outside power. We have an inner sense of the Father's love. And this will then produce a gospel-focused praise and proclamation. Look at verse 4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So <clears throat> they've heard the wind. They've seen the fire. Now a third manifestation of the Spirit is that they all begin speaking in tongues. This is a miraculous gift they are given to speak in languages they had never learned before and probably never heard before. And as we pointed out, this was coming from Galileans. All right. It's important to note, though, um, just as an aside, that these tongues here are, are somewhat different to the way we see tongues appear in the rest of the Bible, um, including 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, which is the most sort of lengthy treatment about tongues. Is There's some differences, including how Paul lays down some principles for how tongues are to be used in church, including a, you've got to have an interpreter, for example. But that's not the case here. Everyone's understanding here. The point is, here in Acts, what we have to appreciate is this is a unique event. And it's not all about, oh, now we all get to speak miraculously in different tongues. That's not the emphasis here, really. Well, what does it mean then? What does this mean, they're saying? It means this, that the gospel is for everyone, everywhere. It's about a new makeup of the kingdom of God. So look at what happens in verse 8. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, uh, the sound of them speaking in tongues, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? If you are from Galilee here, by any chance, all right, no offense, okay? <laughs> So the disciples, they're, they're speaking in these languages and it gets loud. It gets bold, doesn't it? It kind of spills out from the house where they're gathered into the street. In fact, verse 4 
Um, uh, that the Greek uses a word that can be translated utterance, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And it means to speak out. It means to declare loudly or boldly. So, so as they do this, all these Jews in Jerusalem hear it and they, they start to gather around. Um, Luke makes a point that Jews from every nation under heaven were here. No doubt many of them had come and gathered for the, the Pentecost festival. He lists all these different nationalities and people groups who could hear their own language um, from all over the, the known world. I think it's, and they're, they're amazed, they're bewildered. I was thinking of you guys actually, uh, Pierre and uh, Linda G, because Afrikaans is not a very common language. Not many people, and if you were in, I imagine you in Tesco, I was thinking of you in Tesco's, and hearing in the aisle next to you somebody like shouting loudly in Afrikaans. Right in the middle of Tyler's, you'd be or, or Reading, you'd be like, "What's going on around there?" You would, you would also like, "That's not usual. That's not normal." You'd want to go and find out what was going on. Imagine like, if you've been on holiday to a different country, and you hear and nobody speaks your language, and you hear somebody speaking in in English. Right, you're drawn. You can't help it. You're sort of drawn to them. That's just what's going on here. It's drawing people in. Now, why is this important? Because it's telling us about the era of the Spirit, what the kingdom of God is like now. In fact, this was always God's plan, wasn't it? Uh, now it's being fulfilled. All the nations, men and women from every tribe and tongue and nation and culture will be brought in. It means the gospel is for everyone, everywhere. And what is it exactly they're hearing? Verse 11, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. This phrase is, it could be translated as the mighty works of God. That's what we're hearing about. And that would be a technical phrase that's used in the Bible. It's about praising God for his great works of salvation. It has a specific idea. It's about God's works of salvation, rescuing his people from Egypt, parting the Red Sea for them, and so on. But now it includes the mighty works of Jesus, about his salvation. Dying for our sins, rising from the dead for us. They're hearing the praise of God for Jesus. They're hearing the gospel. This new mighty work of salvation in their own language. This is what the coming of the Spirit means. That all people are included. Jesus is for everyone, everywhere, including you this morning. Including you this morning. Whoever you are, wherever you've come from, no matter what you've done, Jesus is for you. And he wants to meet you where you are. Many scholars have also seen here a reversal of the Tower of Babel from Genesis chapters 10 and 11. Remember, there in that story, human beings in their pride, in their arrogance to make a name for themselves, built this great tower in defiance against God. But God judged them, didn't he? He divided them up by confusing their languages. Um, instead of one language, he judged them with many and, and humanity is divided because of its pride. But here, it's almost reversed, isn't it? The old barriers are being torn down in Jesus, he was judged so that the curse can be lifted from the world. Can you see that? This is what their tongues mean. Praise for and proclamation of the gospel for all the world to hear and to be included, united in Jesus. The coming of the Spirit means salvation for the world. But we can also see what being filled with the Spirit means um, 
yeah, what it means to be filled with the Spirit. This is the coming of the Spirit means salvation for all. Being filled with the Spirit means that we now are called to boldly speak about Jesus. Whenever somebody in the book of Acts is filled with the Spirit, it comes out of their mouth. You hear it. They begin to proclaim or preach or prophesy. The filling of the Spirit emboldens God's people to preach, to speak, to share Jesus with the people around them. Isn't it interesting in the verse 13 that some people thought they were drunk? Oh, they're drunk. It's nine o'clock in the morning. Remember, they're a bunch of Galileans, right? Shouting in the streets at nine o'clock in the morning in these gibberish words. I don't understand them. They must be, the only explanation I can connect, they must be drunk. Well, why? Well, because that's what drunk people are like. Well, kind of. Uninhibited. (laughs) Unashamed. And usually joyful. Loud. A spiritful person kind of looks like a drunk person. But also not like a drunk person. Paul picks us up in Ephesians 5 verse 8 and he says, Don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. The reason drunks are uninhibited and jolly is because the alcohol distorts reality. It dulls their sense of reality. It suppresses their brain and they're essentially a bit dumber. But in the spirit, we become more in tune with reality. That reality tells us we are what? Loved by God. That Jesus is alive. That he's reigning and he will come back one day. Um, In the spirit, we don't escape reality. We have a greater understanding and awareness of reality. And it is incredibly liberating. It produces, firstly, here, praise. Tongues, especially in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, is is really praise. Thanksgiving. But but with that here, there's a proclamation of the gospel. When we're full of the spirit, We can't help ourselves but share the good news about Jesus in all the world. Fearlessly, boldly, because it's the most important thing of all. We've got reality now. It's not our reputation. It's not our career. It's not your own relationships and possessions. not even your own safety that matters the most now. All those things are passing away. The Spirit... uh, um, awakens us to the true realities of life and death and eternity and of the kingdom of God. This is the real thing now, and we become obsessed with it, obsessed with Jesus and obsessed with his gospel. And if God loves me, if God, if Jesus really is risen, if his kingdom truly has come, then we've got so much to shout about, haven't we? Is man's ridicule and persecution and mockery, is that really going to keep us silent when we know the truth? We know reality. If you're filled with the Spirit, you will overflow with praise and the proclamation of the gospel. This is the point and how it all launches from here. The gospel breaks down barriers here of culture and language and tradition. It can truly unite the world. Not by making us all the same. Not by making us all the same, but but by making us one in Christ. Listen, do you want to be part of that kind of church? 
where the curse itself, you're seeing it reversed in your midst through Jesus. Listen, folks, he wants your voice added to this chorus of praise. He wants your voice added to this chorus of praise. The coming of the Spirit at Pentecost shows us that the life-giving power of God has been poured out, bringing salvation and transformation to our lives. Friends, you need this power. In all that you're facing, it's not in here. It comes from there, from Jesus in his spirit. The filling of the spirit means a deeper awareness of the love of God for us and his personal presence in our lives. That's why, that's, that explains why these apostles could go on and do the things they did and suffer the way they did because they knew he loves me. Friends, you need this filling if you're going to experience more of God's love. And with this feeling, we find a new obsession with the reality of the gospel and a new, with that, a new boldness to make Jesus known in our lives. Friends, you need the Spirit to fill you if you're going to fulfill his mission that he's given to us. We have skimmed the surface, believe it or not, all right? In, in the time we've had, you've listened well. There's so much more we're going to see as we go on through Acts. And I hope this will help us as a church to engage uh, with this and, and rely more on God's work in our lives by the Holy Spirit. Would you bow your heads and let's pray together?